Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's reading is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm the associate pastor. And uh, we began last week a short series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, pastor Michael defined the Holy Spirit, and this week we're going to look at what he does, specifically uh, fruit and the fruit of our lives. And it kind of reminds me of something that uh, Robin Williams used to say. If you don't know who he was, he was an actor, comedian who um, made us laugh for decades. And um, when he was interviewed, often in his most serious moments, which were not that often, um, he would say this. He would say, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. You see, Robin Williams, even though he came off as a very funny human being, he had this quiet, isolated, private battle with depression that ultimately he took his own life over. And some would say that that is a unique experience for those who aren't Christians because once you become a Christian, uh, then that kind of goes away. And the truth is, uh, that's not true. Our experience is that we have this battle just like people who don't know Jesus have this battle. 
And uh, a famous writer, uh, J.C. Ryle, he was an Anglican bishop in the 19th century, said it this way, and it sounds just like um, uh, Robin Williams. He said, a Christian is not just known for their inner peace, but also for their inner battle. So what is that battle? What is the battle and what does he mean? How do you fight that battle? And then ultimately, can you win that battle? Paul's own personal experience is recorded for us. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 with this inner battle. He will say this in chapter 7 of Romans. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. It is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me. So let's take a a moment and try to understand what the battle is so that we can understand how to fight it and then ultimately how to win it. So what is that battle that both Robin Williams and J.C. Ryle talked about in what Paul experienced. I've used this illustration before, and if you know preachers, we find a good illustration and we ride it till it dies. <laughs> this year is the first year in six years that a tradition that is almost a hundred years old is restarted in my alma mater. I went to Auburn University and After victories, we would go down to Toomer's Corner, which is uh, where two streets come together, and there's a uh, a drugstore called Toomer's Corner there, and there are four oak trees on each of the corners, one oak tree on each of the four corners, that we would go down and roll with toilet paper. And they've been doing that since 1937, so almost 100 years. And after the uh, 2010 National Championship, there was a fan of the University of Alabama who didn't like that Auburn in 50 years finally won a national championship. So in the middle of the night, actually it was early morning, about two in the morning, he loaded his pickup up of uh, pesticide and he dumped uh, a truckload of pesticide on those four trees. Nobody knew it. Nobody probably would have known it for for at least a couple of years, Uh, but he started bragging on the radio, and they found out that the trees were poisoned. And Auburn has a world-renowned horticulture department. And so all of these PhDs got around and tried to figure out, how do you save these beautiful trees, which were 12 years old in 1937 when they started rolling them? How do you save them? And so they tried and they tried for um, uh, two years. They tried and they tried, and it died... Uh, five years after they were poisoned. And um, they said, why don't y'all come back one final time, roll the trees. By the time my daughter, who graduated from Auburn, and her husband and I all went down there for a spring game, it was the last time we got to roll the trees. There were no leaves left. The trees were dead. I tell you that story because the truth is what those roots had In the ground, they absorbed and brought up to the center until they bore their own fruit, which was death. Which is a lot like the story that's in Genesis chapter 3. 
You know, in Genesis chapter 3, Moses tells the story of the beginning. And he says that in the beginning, our first parents lived in a paradise where they could uh, enjoy the garden and uh, do anything they wanted except for one thing, which is to eat from a tree of fruit that they weren't supposed to eat from. And what is the first thing that a child does when mom or dad tells a kid, don't do something? That's the one thing they begin to feel they need to do. And that's exactly what our first parents did. They saw this treat and they said, man, this fruit is probably sweet and it's beautiful and God is holding something back from us that is good and beautiful. And so we're going to get that. And that's exactly what they did in the moment they did. God said, now listen, if you eat of that, you are going to surely die. Now they ate it and you you would say, but Genesis 3 didn't say they died. In fact, they kind of go on. But what happened is just like that tumor corner trees, those live oaks, their roots began to draw up from that evil that was there because of that rebellion into their center of their being and it bore fruit. And one of the first things that does happen is that death begins. Now, they didn't die that day, but surely they would die from what they had done. And every human being that has ever come onto this planet has died. But there's something else that happened too. As they drew up into their being, into the center of their being, what they had done, it bore fruit. Theologians call that depravity. They don't mean that we are as, because of that we're as bad as we will ever be. What it means is that everything that humans have ever touched as a result has been affected by that one rebellious act a long time ago. That's why they call it the original sin. Because it's the first one by which all other things that are done are fruit of. That's really what's at stake here. And it's what Paul means when he says in Romans 7, the evil in me. What he's describing is, because my first parents did that, it brought something into the center of the human being that affects everything that we do, everything that we feel, everything that we uh, uh, practice in our lives. You see, we tend to think it only it has to do with behavior, but it also does with how we feel. Because sometimes we don't feel the way we ought to feel. Somebody does something great, and we feel jealous of it, and so we begin to what? We begin to throw what? blanket on it. We began to tear it down simply because something's wrong with the way we feel about things. We see that all the time. If you're a, 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 a Yankees fan and the Mets win the World Series, how do you feel? Pretty bad. It's how the Mets have been feeling for 40 years. <laughs> Sorry. Not really. (laughs) So what's Paul talking about when he says that in me is something in the center of my being that is bearing fruit, making me do that which I don't want to do? This is what Paul's getting at in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. He's talking about flesh here, but what is flesh? He's not, and this is really hard because often the, the Bible, especially the New Testament, is written in Greek. And so we're translating it from one language in your, the translation that you have in front of you, whether you're on the screen or, or you have some app that opens the Bible. It's a translation into English. And some words don't translate well. And here's one of the words that doesn't translate well. Often, sarks, which is the word that is there, is translated uh, body, like this. But most of the time, sarks doesn't mean your body. It means something else. It be- it's better translated as lust or passions. It may be helpful for you to think of sarks, this flesh, as the root system of your life. That which sinks down into the soil of what is around you and draws up into its center whatever is there and then bears fruit. It may be helpful to think of it that way and these roots will take whatever's there in that soil, into the center of the tree, and make it part of the tree itself. Whatever is there in the soil, the roots bring into the center. That's by nature of the tree, and it's the nature of the human being. Whatever is in the soil around us, and I'm using that as the world, whatever is there, we draw up into our roots, into the system of our tree that produces the fruit. It's not the other way around. We tend to look at a tree and think that fruit just got there. But it didn't. It got there a long time ago when the roots began to draw what was in the soil into the tree. And that's why it bore the fruit that it bore. And so... When your roots begin to sink into the soil, it begins to draw it and produce fruit. What, what this section of the New Testament calls actions or deeds or fruit. And so if your roots are drawing in the things of the flesh, the things uh, that are in the world, the systems by which it thinks and operates and believes and practices, if you begin to draw that up, it will bring out its own fruit. And that's what's listed for us in verses 19 through 21. It says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. We're pretty good with that. That sounds really bad. But then it comes on and it says, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I'll always like the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so on the one hand, this is what's being juxtaposed. On the one hand, if your roots are drawing in the values and the thoughts and the systems of this world, then it'll produce deeds, it'll produce fruit like that. But if, it, if your roots draw in the spirit 
the things of the Spirit, the thinking of the Spirit, the, the belief systems, the values of the Spirit, then as it comes into your being, it will produce a different set of deeds, a separate, different set of fruit. And it goes on in verse 22 and says, this is what that is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's no law. And this is what our text calls walking by the Spirit. We've turned that into some kind of mystery. And to one extent, it might be a kind of mystery. But it's really not that mysterious. Whatever your root system is sitting in, it's drawing up into itself, producing the fruit of what it drew into the center. And that, my friend, is the battle within. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Our roots are drawing into the center of our being. It produces its fruit in our lives, whether it's flesh or spirit. And the truth is, for every human being, it's, for a Christian anyway, both. We're drawing both the flesh and the spirit. And that's why there's a battle. Because we're drawing both in and bearing both kinds of fruit. Now, how does this battle work? Verse 17 uses another word that is hard to translate. It uses the word desires in English. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. But what does the word desire mean here? Epithemia, which is a Greek word, has two compound uh, Greek words put together. Thymia, which means desire, which is often translated here. But epi means over or inordinate. And so the way to translate where it says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, it literally should say, that for the flesh over desires or inordinate desires. So the flesh takes what is good, a good desire, and brings them into the center of our being that has been impacted by our sin and distorts them and makes them ultimate things. Makes them so important and central to our being that they produce fruit after their kind. Let me show you how it works. Let's say you have the problem of human approval. Maybe you don't have it and it's only me. But human approval is actually a good desire. We were built to love someone and be loved by someone. That's the way humans were built. One of the first things that God said after he created everything, he turned to Adam and said, it's not a good for you to be alone. He didn't say it's not good for you to be lonely. He said it's not good for you to be lonely. There was only one kind of him. And so Eve was created. So we were created to love and be loved. But imagine if we drew up into our trunks from our roots the 
the world's definition of human approval. In one way that comes is you're nobody until you love somebody. You're nobody unless someone loves you. And so you spend your life chasing after that love. And it comes out in so many horrible ways. That is, you give up on what is right and beautiful and good to get this one person that you think, if I have them, then I have made it in this life. I am somebody because I have somebody to love me. Do you see? It's a good desire, but once it comes up and we pervert it by the world standards and we believe that falsehood, it produces fruit in us. And so if we have that person, we change everything about us to keep that person. Or if we lose that person, then I am a nobody. I am inferior. I'm broken. Nobody can ever love me, which is the other extreme of what happens when we draw in the world's definition of what love is. Let me give you another example. Success, which is all over New York. But you see, it's a good thing too. It's a good desire. We were built for glory. When God made us, he made us to have purpose. He made us to have weight. He made us to be important. Is that me? <laughs> you can take it with you. <laughs> oh, the old days where we just used to type on stone. <laughs> Carrier pigeons. Success. We were built for importance. We were built for glory. We were, we were built in a way that we matter, that we have weight and substance to us. Now, you take that through the world's definition of what matters is that somehow you're at the top of the food chain at your work or in your club or in sports or in the arts that somehow you're nobody unless you get the applause every time you perform. And when you don't get that performance, then you feel like you're nobody. And that nobody will recognize you or see you or give you applause. You see, it's good things that our body, our human soul takes into the center. And because we live in a broken world, it perverts it and makes us want something that is not good. That's not what God made us for. Let me give you one more identity because I believe that's the question of our day, is it not? As we struggle with what makes someone who they are, who defines you, And that's a good thing because God says we need meaning. We were built for meaning. When God looked at Adam and Eve for the very first time, he said, what? Very good. He gave identity. He said, I have created you in my image. And that gave us meaning and purpose because he didn't say that to any other creation. He didn't say that to the rocks. He didn't say that to the birds. He didn't say that to the fish. He said to the human beings, I create you in my image. And that should have been enough. But our world is taking that need for identity 
and has perverted it and we've brought that reality into the center of our being and we say, unless, unless I can self-actualize who I am by how the world defines what a human being is. And that seems to change on almost an annual basis of what I am. I am who I am. You have to let me be who I am. I get to define me. There's so many initials in our names now. There's so many uh, pronouns that we have to deal with. There's so many things that have come in to our understanding to redefine humanity. And God says, no, no, no. That's fruit after the flesh, not fruit of the Spirit. So whatever you desire, drawn up into the center of your being, will produce deeds associated with whatever you drew up, whether it is of the flesh or the Spirit. If it's of the flesh, you will produce deeds of the flesh, and if it's, if it's of the Spirit, it will produce deeds of the Spirit. And I think this explains our inconsistency. You know, sometimes we've got it down. You know, I'm not, I'm not living for the next promotion. I'm not living for my retirement fund. I'm not living uh, for so-and-so, whether they love me or don't love me. And then the next moment, almost, we're after the next relationship, the next promotion, the next thing, because we're that inconsistent. The only thing consistent about human beings on the face of this planet since the fall is our inconsistency. But I also think it explains our hypocrisy. How we can stand up here, and preachers, we do this all the time, live this way, but then we start living that way. Right? And so the world sees that, oh, I always knew Christians were hypocrites. Of course we are. Of course we are. Because we've entered a battle. A battle of looking at where our roots lie and what's being drawn in, what we believe in, what fruit is being produced. And that's why sometimes we're inconsistent and sometimes we're hypocritical. But last, it it explains why we need a rescue. Paul asked, right after that long, hey man, I do what I don't want to do. And what's doing it in me is this thing I brought into the center of my being. He asked this, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And then he answers it just a few verses later. And I quote it often, it's Romans 8.1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So he says, here's the answer to my question. Who's going to rescue me? Christ Jesus. Not me, not my best efforts, not changing my thought patterns, but Christ is going to change me. Which brings us to the last question. How do we win that battle? Can we win that battle? The key verse in this whole long passage is verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice the order here. I think it's important. It's not those who have crucified the flesh who then qualify to belong to Christ. Because if that's the case, then none of us get in. If, if the standard is, in order to belong to Christ, we have to crucify the flesh, then no one gets in because we're inconsistent, right? And we're hip- hypocritical. And we need a rescue. But no, it's those who belong to Christ first are the ones who can crucify the flesh. Don't you see? 
We can't crucify the things of this world that are coming into our center and producing fruit in our lives without Christ first. We belong to Christ, our rescuer. Then we can begin to crucify the flesh drawn into the center of our being. So the natural question is, how do we know we belong to Christ? In the beginning, we were told that everything was fruitful and good. That those are the words at the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. He'll go on and say to, to us that it's good, 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 very good. Then our first parents ate the only forbidden fruit in the whole garden. Because they doubted the goodness of God. They thought God was holding back on them. They thought that God had a secret. And if they knew what the secret was, then they would have a better life now. We are told that the fruit was sweet and beautiful. As a result of that rebellious act, we lost our fruitfulness. In fact, the way that Genesis 3 describes it is that everything that we do now is accompanied by thorns. And thorns represent the frustration. You think about it. Your work. How many times do you put in hours and hours on a project only to see the project fall under its own weight of frustration? How many times uh, uh, do you have a plan in your, in your mind of, of, uh, uh, of savings and then the economy falls out? I, I remember buying a house in uh, 2007 and it was a, the peak of the area and so we paid premium for the house. And then two years later, we had the housing market fall and so my house was worth two-thirds of what it once was. And it took 10 years for just to get back to the same point it was when I bought it. That's thorns. That's thorns. And hard. That's really hard. Deuteronomy 29, when it begins to describe this, it describes it this way. It calls what's happened in the garden idolatry. And describes the idolatry as wormwood and gall. Wormwood was a bitter herb. And gall was poisonous. So on the cross, Jesus was given wine mixed with what? Gall. And Jesus was tortured with a crown of thorns. I don't think that was happenstance or an accident. He drank the poison so that we could live. And he wore the crown of thorns so that we could be fruitful. What do I mean? My granddaughter, I have several of them, and they all love the Disney movie Tangled, but one really loved it and had a birthday party, a Tangled birthday party, which is weird for the boys. But (laughs) do you know that that's Tangled? Disney took the original fairy tale Rapunzel and made uh, uh, Disney's Tangled. If you read uh, Rapunzel, it's a lot darker than what Disney gave us. You see, in Rapunzel, it's about a beautiful woman who an evil witch gets a hold of and imprisons her in a tower and puts thorns all around the bottom of the tower so nobody can rescue her. And a handsome young prince tries to save her, and when he climbs up the tower, the evil witch catches him and throws him off the tower, and he lands into the thorns, and it gouges his eyes out. I told you Disney left something out. 
The prince wanders around blind and he becomes a blind beggar and, and he's destitute and he's totally miserable by the experience and Rapunzel eventually escapes and she finds the prince and, and she takes him in her arms and she begins to weep and as she weeps, the tears from her eyes falls into his eyes and it heals him. You see, Jesus is our prince. But instead of him needing our rescue, our tears, he cries for us. And it's the tears of our Savior that fall upon our hearts and heals our spiritual blindness so we can see. It is sorrow and love that flowed and mingled down and makes us his. And once we are his, there's not a second stage of Christianity. At that moment that we are his, he gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us because the battle has been won. The battle we experience with real casualties and and bad fruit, ultimately, we win because he won. To prove that he won, he put the Spirit in us. And so if you're a Christian and you feel that battle that sometimes you're just bearing bad fruit, stuff that's hard, stuff that's frustrating, stuff that you wish weren't in your life, keep fighting because you've already won. You've already won. Keep examining the soul that you're driving your roots down into. Look at the fruit that is being produced in your life. And if you're a Christian, you can begin to turn from that to the Spirit. Not perfectly, not even consistently, but surely. And if you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus. You don't need the Spirit. You need Jesus. You need the one who is the prince who has already scaled the tower for you. Who has fallen onto the thorns so you wouldn't have to. Who's already healed you by the tears of his own heart into your heart and set you free. And I guarantee you that if that happens in your life, then the spirit comes with it. It's kind of like you ever buy these things and they say, well, we're going to give you an extra prize. We're going to give you something extra if you'll buy this. That's the Holy Spirit. He comes and he resides in us and he bears fruit in our lives. New set of way to see the world. A new way to uh, have values, to see uh, uh human approval, to way to see import, in way to see success, a way to, to see um, uh, ourselves in need of God's grace. And that's what he does. That's what Pastor Michael tried to get across last week, that the role of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of everything that Jesus said and did. And he comes in us and does that. But we have to have Jesus first. And then the Holy Spirit is thrown in. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this grace. This beautiful picture of the fruit that we were wondering why we see what we see in our lives. That sometimes it looks beautiful. Sometimes it's very sweet. 
But other times it's bitter and frustrating and it hurts the fruit we produce. And sometimes we don't even know why. That's why passages like this illuminate for us that our roots are sitting in soil that has both. And we need to identify that and crucify that, but we can only do that by the work of the Spirit. As we seek to walk in Him and His values and His understanding of the claims of Christ in our lives. Whether we are followers of Jesus yet or not, this is the path of what it means to follow. Help us to walk in the Spirit today. And then tomorrow when we get up, to continue to do that even deeper and longer than today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.